0: Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Salafi Muslims, modernity, and the search for authenticity. <laughs> the word Salafism comes from the Arabic term As-Salaf, or as- As-Salaf As-Saleh, the ancestors or the pious ancestors, meaning the first couple of generations of Muslims who were closest to the Prophet Muhammad himself and his own religious practice. There's a paradox, though, at the heart of Salafism, which is that this movement to rediscover and to relive that early ancestral 7th century Islam only developed in the 20th century Middle East especially in Egypt, before spreading elsewhere, whether to Arabia, now Saudi Arabia, or other parts of the Middle East and the Muslim world and beyond. In this episode, we're going to be exploring and unpacking this paradox, starting out by defining the the term Salafism itself, and at least defining it for the purposes of our historical discussion About this emergence of Salafism in the 20th century in the heart of a context of modernity, not merely scientific but also political, involving the context, particularly in modern Egypt and indeed of Arabia and Saudi Arabia, of the emergence of modern nation states with their own expectations of the beliefs and indeed the behavior of modern 20th century citizens of these new nation states. We'll be seeing then that in its context then, Salafism, despite being a search for a 7th century authenticity, was imbued with modernity. And that paradox then, the search for authenticity at the heart of 20th century Middle Eastern modernity, will be something we'll explore over the next hour. Joining me, leading me in this conversation is Aaron Roxinger, who is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of an important new book based upon thousands and thousands of pages of Arabic Salafi texts. And the title of that book is In the Shade of the Sunnah. Salafi Piety in the 20th Century Middle East, which had just been published by the University of California Press. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber.
1: Thanks for having me, Now I'm happy to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking about Salafism, a word uh, and a term that's often found in many journalistic or indeed in many many muslim religious publications but it's a term uh, and indeed a, a movement or perhaps a set of movements that's widely misunderstood perhaps in uh, in much of the world or at least in kind of western reportage salafism is often associated with political islam or indeed with with forms of, of religious violence what some people would gloss as a sort of subset of Salafi jihadism but as we'll we may well discuss over the next uh the next hour Salafism is so to speak a very broad church and uh, it's a term a self description and an emic term as we might say a term used among Muslims and sars and followers of these movements but it's also a word that's kind of slipped into the academic and the journalistic account of Islam by Muslims. So it's a a, once an an emic, an internal Islamic term, and an etic, a sort of scholarly and journalistic external term as well. So really, in any discussion of, of Salafism, we really need to start off by defining what, at least for the purposes of our discussion and for the purposes of your work and indeed your book as a As a scholar of Islam, uh, and indeed as a scholar of Salafism, can you start us off, Aaron, by defining Salafism and by then outlining the origins and key characteristics of this movement, or as you might perhaps prefer, set of movements?
1: So the question of why um, I wrote this book is really precisely this challenge, one of defining Salafism. Now, we might begin with the statement that Salafism is an Islamic reformist movement that originated in the Middle East and South Asia during the early 20th century. In Egypt, Salafism arises with the establishment of Ansar al-Sunnah al-Muhammadiyah in 1926. One might also note that this is two years before the founding of Egypt's leading Islamist movement, the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. Now, like Sunni Muslims more broadly, Salafis draw inspiration from the model of the early Islamic community in 7th century Medina. Their focus is on the statements and actions of not only the Prophet Muhammad, but also his companions and more broadly, the first generation, first three generations, excuse me, of the Muslim community. These first three generations are known as the pious ancestors, or As-Salaf as-Salah, and that's where the name comes from. And to come back to the title of my book, In the Shade of the Sunnah, the Sunnah is the account of the life of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions that's held by Sunni Muslims to be an authoritative guide for how Muslims should think and act. Now, what distinguishes Salafis from other Sunni Muslims is how they seek to emulate the early Islamic community. Specifically, they combine three key characteristics, a commitment to a particular theological approach, about how to understand God's names and characteristics, a rejection of the Islamic legal school system in favor of ostensibly direct engagement with Sunnism's two core sources, the Quran and the Sunnah, and finally, the performance of distinct social practices. And that's really the last of those is really the focus of this book. Now, as Henri Lazier has shown prior to the 1920s, there were Sunni Muslims who claimed to be Salafi did so in relation to theology alone. One could, for example, be Salafi in theology or Creed Salafi al-Aqidah, but belong to a particular legal school, whether it's Hanbali or Maliki or other. By contrast, after the 1920s, what it means to be Salafi relates to both a particular theological approach and a legal approach. The two are merged. And while the most prominent Salafis today are those who engage in politics known as politico Salafis or Islamist Salafis, or Jihadis known as Salafi Jihadis or or Jihadi Salafis alternatively, the vast majority of Salafis are quietists. They abstain from formal political participation or even criticizing the ruler and don't engage in either political competition or armed struggle. Now, to make our story a little even more complicated, Salafis are often confused with the dominant religious approach of Saudi Arabia, which is generally referred to as Wahhabism or Wahhabi Hanbalism. Crucially though, they're distinct from them. It is in the realm of legal reasoning that this is particularly evident. While Salafis seek to make their arguments by drawing exclusively on the Quran and the Sunnah, Wahhabi Hanbali scholars also draw on rulings of the Hanbali legal school, as well as extra textual considerations such as utilizing appeals to the common good of Muslims more broadly, or a technique known as damning the pretext of sin. That is to say, forbidding an action, not because the Quran and Sunnah explicitly forbid it, but rather because it is likely to lead to an impermissible action. Now, this is far from a unique procedure or unique to Islam in Jewish law and halakha, this is known as building a fence around the Torah. Now to come back to the main focus of my book, the practices that distinguish Salafism as a project are fourfold. Praying in shoes, gender segregation, a fist length beard paired with a trimmed mustache, and finally ankle length, lower pants or robes, these shortened lower garments. Now, none of these practices are exclusive to Salafis on their own, but collectively they make it possible to visibly distinguish Salafis from their non-Salafi pious Muslim counterparts. Now these practices matter because they define what it means to be a Salafi in practice and they make Salafis recognizable to other Salafis as well as to non-Salafis alike in a political context in which Salafis are a minority and in which they've barely had access to political power Practices that facilitate individual engagement and maintain communal boundaries are really crucial. This is why, over the course of the 20th
0: century, Salafis have adopted distinct social practices. Well, that's really helpful, Aaron. Thank you so much. And, you know, kind of giving us these kind of clear definitions of what we might mean by Salafism and indeed what what characterize Salafis. As you said, the the practice of of Salafism and what Salafis do. I mean, to, to to recap a little bit because these definitions are so important. I mean, as you've explained, the, the term salafi comes from this, it's much older, very kind of early Islamic term, an Arabic term, a Salaf, the, the ancestors or a Salaf a-saleh, the, the early ancestors, the first few generations of Muslims, followers of the Prophet Muhammad, and thereby followers of, of the practice or the example of. Of the Prophet Muhammad's religious practice his behavior, then, which is what we call the Sunnah, the, the the model, the practice, the pious example of Muhammad who gives us the term Sunni. So we can see this sort of the the, the notion of the Salaf and, and indeed of, of the Sunnah and of Sunni Islam, then are kind of a very old terms. And they've been around for, of course, a very long time, since the very early Islamic period. Yet, of course, the 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 difficulty and the complexity of 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 writing the history and tracing the history of Salafism then is, is that as a movement then, this emerges as you as you've explained to us in the 1920s, then in a period in the colonial period in, uh, in in Egypt, the late colonial period, or strictly speaking, in a sense when Egypt is achieving its independence, and also in in Arabia, which is actually shifting in the 1920s from being its own decolonization, uh, strictly speaking, again, from being an, a province of the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Arabia, then to being what we now think of as, as Saudi Arabia. And that brings me to another, just to sort of gloss on another of the couple of the key terms you brought up, of Hanbalism as one of the four uh, legal schools, legal methods of, of, of traditional Sunni Islam, but for much of Islamic history, perhaps the least influential. Um, founded then by Ibn Hanbal, who dies in 855. And this then was a, a legal school that was revived in Arabia in the 18th century by this figure, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, dies in 1792. And then hence we get the Wahhabi movement as a branch of, if you like, of Hanbal Islam, but then that's taken up by the Saudi family and then the kind of Saudi state in the 1920s and 30s. And then indeed these Salafis that you'll be talking about come to have increasing influence in Saudi Arabia, as well as in, in Egypt, the focus of your work. So just to kind of sketch some of those, that sort of, you know, kind of reiterate some of the context you've laid out for us. And another key term that I'll gloss again for our read for our readers, our listeners, um, that you've used in case it comes up again, it's a really key term, is it quietism, that word that the scholars we often use, which means, let's say, non-political, people who don't uh, you know, kind of get involved in politics. We often call of quietest then, so non-political quietest Salafis, the non-political, as you said, the majority of Salafis are the quietists rather than the politically active or Islamist political Islamic um, uh, Salafis And then you've also, which we'll explore now more fully, you've brought up the importance of practice and and behaviour and modes of visible behaviour then, and that's kind of key in a sense to. What Islam has always been about. The sunnah is what Muhammad said, reports of what Muhammad said, or involve the hadith, the traditions of the tell us what Muhammad said, but also of course what Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, did practice then. So these notions of practice have, have always been integral, of course, to, to Islam, but become particularly important then in the in this 20th century context, you'll be telling us about then of the definition of Salafism and the definition, the self-definition is distinction of Salaf from other sunni muslims so to get sort of to the to this point of that you're exploring then in your book that salafism is often understood by non-muslim scholars and indeed often by some Salafis or other uh, muslims themselves as being primarily a theological movement or as a legal method but in your book by contrast you've been you've conceived and argued that we should understand salafism as a social movement and indeed as being defined by practices so can you explain this for us and particularly perhaps starting off by this element of thinking of salafism as a as primarily a social more so or at least as much as of a as a theological and uh, and or legal movement.
1: So so there's something of a disjuncture today in how we study salafism and how salafism exists in the real world. Namely As you noted, Salafism is primarily studied as being a theological movement or a legal method, but on the other hand, the reason we care about Salafism as a project is because Salafis are incredibly influential social actors, incredibly powerful social movements, who have really redefined goalposts of public morality over the past century. And the question is how to understand that, how to make sense of that. Now, It is certainly the case that over the past century, Salafis across the Middle East and South Asia have worked hard to distinguish themselves from other Islamic reformist movements and from scholars aligned with traditionalist Sunni schools of law through particular views on theology and law. And I would also say that Salafism is certainly important in terms of the intellectual history of Islamic reformism and of modern Islamic thought more broadly. So the scholarship that I'm responding to is scholarship that has made really, really serious contributions. Yet, the reason why Salafism is significant as a movement is not merely its theological vision or legal approach, but also because it has changed and been changed by the societies from which it has emerged. To put it a little bit differently, Salafism's social project is what has made its influence most durable and manifest. And this is the space in which theological and legal ideals are carried out in practice. That if we want to understand why theology matters, well, we've got to look to practice. And on, a, on the most basic level, social practices are what makes Salafis visible and recognizable to other Salafis and non-Salafis alike. They're the most fundamental way that Salafis shape the world around them. Now, in a political context in which Salafis are a minority and in which they rarely have access to these levers of power, practices that facilitate individual engagement and maintain communal boundaries, for that matter, are really, really crucial. And this is the reason why, over the course of the 20th century, we see Salafis adopt distinctive social practices. Now, one might think about these social practices and say that this is a story of Salafis politicizing daily life of trying to change the societies around them in ways that don't reflect the heritage of those societies. But here it's really important to note is that what Salafis are doing is actually responding to the politicization of daily life by modern states and competing movements, Islamic and non-Islamic alike. In this story at the forefront, we have to place secular nationalists who have sought to shape how people live their lives daily in matters as varied as grooming, food, and child rearing. In the Egyptian context, to take the focus of this book, it was first the Ottoman Egyptian state and then British colonial officials who institutionalized a linkage between one's ideological allegiances and one's appearance. Uh, And here, the point is that Previously, one could hold certain positions, but wasn't necessarily expected to visibly perform it in daily life. Um, we can think of a very basic form of social practice that, does, that serves this function as the uniform, right? That one wears a uniform, whether going to a school or working in a government office, and one communicates where one works and by extension, a level of allegiance to that institution. So the question in this context, in the shadow of both Ottoman, Egyptian, and British colonial legacies of self-regulation is how and why do distinctive social practices come to matter for Salafism as a 20th century social movement. Now, to understand this, it's first necessary to note a fundamental difference between the 7th century examples that Salafis cite and their lived reality in the 20th century. In the seventh century, the operative question of social practice was how to distinguish Muslims from non-Muslims, particularly other monotheists such as Jews and Christians. So for example, the command to pray in shoes is meant to distinguish Muslims from Jews in Arabia who apparently prayed barefooted during this period. And similarly, wearing a beard was meant to distinguish Muslims from polytheists who apparently did not have facial hair. We can also just extend to the realm of ritual practice that the early Islamic community initially prayed towards Jerusalem until they shifted to praying towards Mecca. Now, by contrast, in the 20th century, the operative question for Salafis is how to distinguish themselves from other Muslims. This takes place in the context of the transition from colonial to post-colonial rule when new states, and for that matter, the national communities maintained within them have to figure out a complex set of internal relationships. This challenge is in some sense, twofold. First, it's that pious Muslims are not dominant compared to their secular nationalist competitors. Often those secular nationalist competitors end up in control of the state. Secondly, there's the fact that a variety of Islamic movements have arisen, all of whom perform piety in some way, and so Salafis have to make a highly complex case for their fidelity to the prophetic model. It's not that Salafis are the only ones claiming authenticity, but rather they're playing a game in which different models of authenticity, secular nationalist, and Islamic, are competing. Now, this is, of course, a theological and a legal question. And my argument here is that practice is a necessary outgrowth of these theological and legal commitments, and the challenges that Salafis are facing as they try to build a bridge between those commitments and a rapidly changing world. So it's in this context that we see how Salafi efforts to shape society are inescapably animated by a modern logic of communication and the related linkage of ethics and visible self-regulation that this movement inherited from modern states. The idea here is at a core level that to be Salafi, such as just as to be a secular nationalist, is to be observed and perceived as Salafi. Without being seen as such, it is very hard to be a member of this group. And related to that, it's next to impossible to understand the centrality of theology or law to Salafism without considering Salafism as a social movement too. Now you might be listening to me and think to yourself, he's really foregrounding everything that is non-Islamic or external to the Islamic tradition when it comes to understanding Salafism. And that move is intentional. And the reason why I am studying Salafism in this way is not to devalue the influence of Islamic precedence or to downplay the influence on Islamic precedence on this movement that seeks so profoundly to model itself after the early Islamic community in 7th century Arabia. Rather, the point of this move analytically is that we can only actually answer the question of the role that the Islamic tradition broadly conceived plays in the emergence of Salafism once we have answered the question of how Salafis are shaped by distinct influences of the 20th century. And that's
0: that's really useful because that, that actually where you finished off there and gives us an understanding of actually how traditions work, whether it's more religious traditions, whether Islamic traditions, Jewish traditions, Christian traditions, whether there's a usage, perhaps that I don't mean to in that instrumental sense, a reading and understanding and interpretation of much older core, fundamental, early texts of whatever kind, whether it's scriptures or extra scriptural commentaries, legal texts, et cetera. But they're always interpreted and made meaningful in a particular historical time and space. And in your case, and indeed in the case of the Salafi movements that emerged from the 1920s there, is this historical time and space and of the Middle East in this period of uh, more expansive colonial states. And then, as you've explained, then these post-colonial states, particularly Egypt with its... uh, with its secular nationalism, and indeed in other Arab states across the Middle East, which, with the the foundation of the Baath Party in 1947, then become Arab socialist states, or Arab socialist dominant political parties that control states. Then, and of course, as in naturally in all socialist states, then the state becomes a more important actor necessarily to be able to achieve a sort of a, you know kind of socialist as well as uh, secular goals. So this is a you know one particular I think important concept that you you you've helped us then that that all religious traditions then are, are interpreted in a particular context, and this is the, the context in which Salafism emerges then, of these new types of states, and then particular types of modern states, drawing again on, on the work from outside, from let sort of, say Islamic studies, but a very major study by uh, the late historian C.S. Bailey and his uh, widely influential work, The Birth of the Modern World, and one of the characteristics he pointed to in modernity was an increase in uniformity, by which he did indeed partly mean the increased use of, of uniforms by kind of state officials of various kinds of so the bureaucrats, soldiers or, or others. But also, you know, the, the growth of what he calls, they're not just uniforms, but of, of, of certain forms of uniformity. And, and when you were speaking then, I mean, you're bringing up the beards then, which is a kind of classic, in some senses, Islamic and a Sunni, and it is Shi'i marker, but also, as you explain, a certain type of beard then, a distinguisher of a of a, a Salafi sort of mark or Salifa identity or uniformity. I, th- I thought it's sort of worth throwing in too, you know, an observation that it's not only the beards, but also mustaches in much of the 20th century, you know, kind of the, the mustaches distinct from the beard or indeed even the shaved face in much of uh, the, the Middle East, and particularly in, in, in Afghanistan, where I'm most familiar with, this was a symbol of being kind of secular nationalist and often actually being sort of a leftist and sort of a, a socialist, Afghan or, or otherwise. And similarly, of course, the, the secular secularizing states across the Middle East in the uh, early through mid-20th century then were very much involved in clothing reform, of getting rid of the, the tarbush, the so-called fez then, and indeed of banning you know, traditional kinds of, of headwear in, in, in Iran and replacing with them the so-called pahlavi cap, you know, kind of with uh, sort of a national Iranian headdress, which again forms a kind of a sort of state-sponsored secularizing Uniformity as well. So again, I'm sort of you know following the move that you're making there in you know, understand Salafism as a religious movement. We we actually need to understand the the secular uh, and and political uh, context and indeed forms of uniformity that the Salafis are, are emerging amongst then and, and indeed quite self consciously reacting and defining themselves from. So your approach then. Shifts, us, uh, shifts our conception of Salafism then away from, as you've noted, from legal theories and theological abstractions alone, not getting rid of those, but, but trying to understand what Salafis themselves are trying to achieve through these abstractions. They're not sort of just involving it in, in an interlegal, intellectual, abstract debate. Of course, their legal and theological concerns then are about uh, changing behavior or trying to reform Muslim behaviors in a way that they see as being in line with those of the the Salaf, the the pious ancestors. So your conception then shifts us away from these abstractions, so to speak, then to a focus upon uh, what you call practice, behaviour, and thereby the body. Why is this helpful, then, in understanding Salafism? So the centrality of the body to ideological contestation is a longstanding feature
1: of research on both nationalism and gender within and beyond the Middle East. So most basically, my move is to focus on bodily practice in Salafism in order to bring Salafism and the study of Salafism into conversation with scholarship on nationalism and gender. Now, it's certainly the case that every movement has its specificities, but ideologically opposed movements often share substantial similarities as well. And we can better understand how these ideological competitors shape each other only by placing them side by side. So, for example, the secular nationalist project of state feminism in Egypt, and here I'm drawing on the wonderful work of Laura Beer is a story of women serving as both an object and agent of progress. This understanding of women's role in public space is adopted without any attribution by the Salafi movement as they lay claim to the necessity of gender segregation in the 1970s. That whereas Abdel Nasser's understanding of state feminism um, in this, from a secular nationalist perspective argued that women must performatively bail, Salafes were saying, no, no, performative bailing isn't enough, one needs sartorial bailing. But in both cases, women being in public wasn't a bug, it was a feature of the system, that women needed to be in public to carry out not merely the secular nationalist project, but also the Salafi project. Now a move towards the body also has a few key benefits in understanding Salafism beyond the basic observation that social movements invariably depend on mobilizing men and women to use their bodies and to mark those bodies in particular ways. Firstly, it allows us to consider questions of masculinity alongside those of femininity in the study of Salafism like we would any other social movement. In Middle Eastern and Islamic studies, we have spent a great deal of time talking about fails. And gender is certainly an important topic, but the study of gender is not limited to, for example, gender segregation, but also extends to a range of other Salafi practices performed exclusively by men. I should also say that a focus on the body allows us to trace how ritual practice can serve as a potent yet vulnerable form of political contestation. For example, in chapter three of my book, I trace the rise and fall of an early practice of Salafism, praying in shoes. And this chapter is in some ways, to my, from, in my experience, is the most mind-bending of the chapters that I wrote for this book, because it is quite literally a story of how Salafis trumpet a practice that the Prophet Muhammad clearly performed, and over the course of the second half of the 20th century, come up with a variety of reasons why they shouldn't perform. It. Totally opposite to what we might expect from a, a commitment to reproducing the Quran and the Sunnah.
0: Perhaps could you sort of, you know, uh, un- unpack this uh, praying issues element? Because I think for... for- most listeners, and perhaps even the, the best informed listeners, this will be really surprising because of the many, many Muslim countries I've visited. You know, I, I guess I hadn't been to any Salafi mosques. Now I think about it, or at least uh, perhaps not in the time when they were when they were doing this. You know, can I take this as a given that the Muslims take off their shoes and uh, to pray? So, so could you sort of unpack this a little bit before you continue?
1: Absolutely. So we have pretty significant evidence that in early Islamic history, Muhammad prayed at times. In shoes. This was in the context of Islam being very much a religion that had developed in the desert, um, in which mosques did not have, we can't we shouldn't imagine the ornate mosques of urban civilization in this context, but rather very simple mosques that befit um, a population that is transitioning from nomadism to state building. Um, now what we see within the first couple centuries of Islamic history is that this practice drops off. We have a shift to these ornate mosques at these urban centers, first in Damascus, then in Baghdad, uh, as the centers of the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates respectively. We have the provision in those mosques of these beautiful carpets um, that cover the floor of the mosque. So instead of it being stone or sand or dirt, we're talking about carpets. And in this context, praying in shoes basically falls by the wayside, with the exception of one legal school popular in Saudi Arabia, the Hanbali legal school, which preserves it up through the 20th century. And this is precisely what makes it such a useful move for Salafis. There's clear textual evidence that Muhammad prayed in shoes. There's clear evidence that early Muslims followed Muhammad in praying in shoes, but this is a form of social distinction. And so for Egyptian Salafis in the mid 20th century, this was a perfect way to use their bodies to signal a commitment to a particular religio-political project that challenged the broader norms of Egypt's Sunni Muslim majority that you could tell who was a Salafi and who was not by whether they prayed in shoes. Uh, and this also drove some competing gro- groups absolutely mad. They said, who are these members of Ansar Sunnah who deface our mosques by refusing to remove their shoes? But it wasn't simply a question of religious practice as such. The question of praying in shoes also intersected with state-sponsored notions of hygiene and their application to mosques. Part of what makes this such a fruitful site for Salafis to contest is that these notions of hygiene are actually very different than long-standing Islamic legal understandings of ritual purity. As a result, Salafis were actually in a pretty strong position legally that it was possible to purify one's shoes prior to going into the mosque. But what they were doing wasn't simply challenging uh, those who opposed them legally, but also challenging secular nationalist conceptions of hygiene that were extended to the mosque as well as to all other spaces in Egyptian society. But here's the challenge of a practice like that. It's a a double-edged sword. It's a practice that's totally premised on standing out and even one might say, driving your opponents a little bit crazy. The problem is that it also exposes you to serious potential blowback. And with the repression of the Muslim Brotherhood post-1954 in Egypt, Salafis have a lot more concern about repression by state security forces uh, and it's thus unsurprising that from the 1960s on praying in shoes recedes significantly among salates. Now to give you just a example of how that' reflected well, of how that is expressed, this is a pretty regular topic in Egyptian cehy publications in the 1950s in the early 1950s and certainly in the 1940s. From the mid-50s on until essentially 1989, 1990, Egypt's leading Salafi organization on al-Muhammadiyah in its magazine, which is first called al-Hadi al-Nabawi and then al taqid this question doesn't come up once. I have read every single fatwa request in that magazine, the monthly magazine, hundreds of issues. It doesn't come up once. After being a very important issue for a series, for a matter of about a decade. Now, coming back to the question of the body more broadly, a focus on the body alerts us to challenges of miscommunication that are characteristic of social performance more broadly. And in chapter six of the book, I trace the adoption of the prohibition against letting one's robes or pants hang down past the ankle, known as isbel. Now, like praying in shoes, the practice of observing isbel is long standing in theory, but in practice had fallen off during the early, in the early 20th century. In the late 20th century, however, Egyptian Salafis, as well as their counterparts across the Persian Gulf, begin to observe Ismail in order to supplement their other distinctive social practices, such as the fist length beard, which is paired with a trimmed mustache, um, or gender segregation. This practice serves in addition to this to distinguish Salafis from Jihadi groups who wore long flowing robes in Egypt known as the Jalabiya but did not observe Isbel. So here, a focus on the body cast light on challenges of bodily communication. Isbel was necessary in key part because it helped to resolve some of the challenges of miscommunication that quite a Salafis in Egypt pit faced vis-a-vis their counterparts in other movements, particularly jihadi groups. So in some, there's a whole world of social contestation that is central to Salafism's development and spread as a movement that we totally miss if we exclusively focus on theology and law, if we don't center in on the body. To repeat a point I've made before, these practices are not secondary to Salafi theology or, or to Salafism's legal approach, but rather central to those commitments and the way of living those commitments in practice, the way of orienting all of their life to God through worship. This is a central theological tenet of Salafism. It's derived from the thought of the damascene Hanbali Jurist Ibn Taymiyyah, who's very popular among Salafis, um, and the idea here is that social practice becomes a form of worship. And in the process, the boundary between what, is, what Muslims consider worship, which is a pretty stable boundary in Islamic history, uh, it relates to very clear ritual acts such as prayer, is adjusted to encompass more and more social life. And conversely, the domain of custom or adar or Urf, which is historically a domain that includes a pretty broad range of social practices including dress is narrowed to exclude a variety of forms of local diversity that have historically been allowed. A third point is that it's not merely that social practices are significant to Salafism's impact but that these a focus on these practices is a really analytically fruitful way to trace Salafism's development. When it comes to questions of theology, such as the commitment by Salafis to God's oneness, which for that matter, they share with other Muslims, there's a limit to how much we can show change over time. That commitment to God's oneness doesn't change a lot, at least not in any explicit sense. And one could easily conclude from studying Salafi understandings of theology that the movement as a result hasn't changed much, that it's truly a throwback. Now, this isn't true. Salafi claims to orient life around worship of God don't exist in a vacuum from the ideological or social transformation of the 20th century. Instead, we can think of the Salafi invocation of God's oneness and the attempt to subsume social life under worship of God as a challenge to the vision of state sovereignty and authority Transmitted by the modern state. But if we're just focusing on theology, this is much, much harder to trace. A turn to social practice, on the other hand, allows us to trace the process by which Salafis adopt particular practices and crucially, the logic by which they do so.
0: Thanks, Aaron. And and, then you're your explanation there, and particularly earlier on, in 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 in, in your answer to this last question, you were given this this very vivid and uh, sort of uh, how would I say, kind of it, it, um imaginable, sort of embodied picture of, of of different Muslims: some going to pray in a mosque, the Salafis with their shoes at a certain point of the twentieth century, and the other unshoeed Muslims then objecting to this, the length of beards and so on. And you were given this 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 sense of of the Salafis involved in a process of self-differentiation against other Muslims, other Sunni Muslims, uh, particularly in this context then in Egypt, uh, as well as secular nationalists or, or, or non-practicing Muslims or whatever else, other peoples in that society, of course, including of course, uh, Egyptian Christians as well. So there's this issue then that, that scholars of the 20th century and indeed the 21st century, you know, kind of, uh, or indeed ordinary people nowadays, is an increasingly influential word, which is authenticity. And that's something that you've dealt with as well, as indeed of other uh, analysts of modernity, Islamic or otherwise. Because there's there's an apparent paradox in Salafism, isn't there, between this, this concern for authenticity for the pure, unadulterated, original Islam of the first generation of Muslims, the Salaf. And its emergence then, this paradox between this this concern for Salafi, original ancestral authenticity then, and the emergence of the Salafi movement in the 20th century. So can you explain for us why the spread of Salafism was so intertwined with modernity?
1: So I'm happy you brought up the question of authenticity
0: uh, because I think this
1: concern with authenticity is intimately linked to the ruptures of modernity. Now, specifically, I'd argue that the radical political, social, and economic ruptures of modernity fuel claims to authenticity. And here we might note the title of Muhammad Qasim Zaman's 2012 book, Modern Islamic Thought in a Radical Age. The fundamental point of this title is that while it is certainly the case that modern Islamic thought or movements can be radical, it is useful to contextualize those projects that seek to transform the status quo by understanding the ways in which the status quo has already been transformed by ostensibly value neutral or positive shifts relating to modernization. That those shifts are truly radical if we think of radical as a rupture from the status quo, and that Groups such as Salafis are simply responding to that. Part of our problem, though, in understanding Salafism's relationship to modernity is that this movement often arouses polarized reactions owing to the very real implication of Salafism's socially conservative vision on opportunities for everything from female education to employment across and beyond the Middle East. There are real practical consequences to this project. And in academic context, I've often been greeted with the offhand remark that Salafis are backwards or seeking to live like they're in the seventh century. And sure, Salafis certainly understand themselves consistent with the latter claim. They don't understand themselves as backwards, but they certainly say, oh, yeah, yeah, we are seeking to live um, in accordance with the seventh century. But that doesn't mean this is a historically accurate claim. And I'm generally of the view that modern religious traditions are, in fundamental respects, more similar to each other than they are to their, each of them are to their pre-modern predecessors. Um, And here, for example, I've been inspired by Joseph Solveitchik's classic 1994 article in the Jewish Studies Journal, Tradition, on changing models of religiosity for Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews in the 20th century United States. And what he does is really show the way in which legal observance becomes particularly punctilious in a way that would render leading members of that community lax in their observance 50 years later. I've also though been inspired by a name that has already come up in this conversation, namely Christopher Bailey's work on global history during the long 19th century, particularly the growing convergence of bodily practices across the world. And if we think of this question of explaining this question of convergence and the two potential explanations of shared environmental conditions versus linkages, I think that the fundamental thing we are seeing here is shared environmental conditions, particularly the projects of subject formation transmitted by modern states. Now, in terms of the spread of Salafism, I'm interested in two related shifts of modernity. One, the development of these powerful modernizing states that transmit particular models of subject formation, and specifically that these models of subject formation assume a linkage between an ideological commitment and visible practice. The second concern I have is with the related need of Salafis, as well as their ideological competitors, to perform this modular approach in distinct fashion. The reason why Salafis care so much about beards or pants is not simply that they are shaped by competition with their secular nationalists or Islamist competitors, though they certainly are but rather because all of these groups have inherited the linkage between ethics and visibility transmitted by modern states. These are the rules of the game and Salafis are playing by them and seeking to navigate the challenges of communication like all other groups. But again, to come back to the question of modernity, it is precisely the degree of change that Salafis, like anyone else, have experienced in the context of modernity that make a claim to authenticity so urgent and appealing. And here we can think of the parallels between this telling of Islamic history in highly selective fashion and the way in which nationalist projects tell history in highly selective fashions. Uh, And nationalist histories are rightfully critiqued for not being particularly good history. Um, And one might say that Salafi history in that sense have some of the same weaknesses uh, for academics. I should also note here why I feel the need to make this argument as strongly as I do. Over the past 20 years, the late Saba Mahmoud's The Politics of Piety is one of the most important texts in the not just the anthropology of Islam literature, but in the broader field of Islamic studies. It's a massively important piece of work that has shaped scholarship on piety and gender alike. Mahmoud, building on the work of Talal Assad on discursive traditions, emphasizes not merely the ruptures of modernity, but also key continuities in affect and reasoning. Now in this context, there's an acknowledgement that contemporary Islamic piety has been shaped by the conditions of modernity, but there's no substantive engagement as to how it has been shaped. Mahmoud's work is also particularly significant in this regard because she happened to study disproportionately Salafi mosques. Of the four mosques she studied, one was controlled by Egypt's leading Salafi organization, Ansar al-Sunnah al-Muhammadiyya, and another by a second Salafi group, Jamaat Da'wat al-Paq. A third mosque that she studied was run by the Jamia Sharia, which is not formally speaking Salafi, but has strong Salafi segments within it. Now, in her scholarship, she doesn't use the term Salafi to describe these mosques. She describes them um, as charitable non-governmental institutions. Central to Mahmoud's argument, and here I'm quoting, is that, Piety activists seek to imbue each of the various spheres of contemporary life with a regulative sensibility that takes its cue from the Islamic theological corpus rather than from modern secular ethics. It is certainly the case that Salafis seek to imbue contemporary life with a regulative sensibility derived from the Islamic theological corpus, but what I'm most interested in here is not what they seek to do, but what they do. And the reason for this is because as much as I appreciate what the use of the discursive tradition approach among anthropologists of Islam seeks to do and how important it is for us as historians or anthropologists to render those we study in ways that are at least partially recognizable to them. What I'm trying to do here with Salafis is to render them in a way that reveals the linkages and commonalities that the self-understanding has obscured. And it is here that the big contrast relates to visibility. For Mahmoud, visibility is secondary and conscious use of visible performance is a largely cynical instrumentalism associated with Islamists. By contrast, in my telling, considerations of visibility are central and far from being instrumentalists are simply inescapable. The linkage between ethics and visibility isn't a conscious one. It is simply a fact of life. So to come back to your question, projects that seek authenticity are in no way unique to modernity, but I would argue that the ruptures of modernity create structural conditions that make such a project more attractive
0: to a broad audience. So you've given us this sense then that this Salafi quest for authenticity amidst this Amidst modernity, amidst this modern society, really involves a, a kind of deeply ethical and sincere, rather as you said, kind of instrumental or, or, or in some way that we think that the bodily is somehow a, a superficial sort of you know skin deep element. That this this is the outward performance of the kind of the full living of these ethical concerns, which Salafis. Through an enormous amount of, let's say, scholarly and uh, and scriptural and, and broader sort of uh, engagement with written tradition, that Salafi then scholars and ordinary Salafis who follow them kind of see that that these this, these bodily these performative elements are the the full living then of a, of an ethical vision of Islam then that relates to life in this world then as well as the as the hereafter. So. Sticking then, I mean, as throughout our discussion, really, with this 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 question of modernity, the the the, the time and place of the twentieth and twenty first century, perhaps we'll, in our last question, pan out our vision um, more broadly then, and let me ask you, what does Salafism tell us about Islam in the twentieth century and twenty first century more generally? One of the central questions in the study of Islam in the 20th and
1: 21st century, broadly speaking modern Islam, is the extent to which the conditions of modernity have reshaped Islamic thought and practice. Is the story that we have here, one that is primarily one of continuity with the pre-modern Islamic tradition, or is it one of greater rupture? Um, And scholars such as Junaid Qadri have done really fantastic work on this this question. as well as I should say, um, recent work by Nadam Tez. In this book, I focus on the movement in contemporary Islam that is most committed to continuity with the 7th century, uh, specifically 7th century Arabia and the guiding logic of its practices. My argument about Salafism is that this is a story of rupture, but not one of the creation of new practices. Salafis work very hard to situate the practices that they claim within early Islamic history. But rather, my argument is that they place new content, specifically a distinctly modern logic of ethics and visibility into old boxes. If this is the case for Salafis who are so deeply invested in continuity, then one can argue that it should be the, it is also the case for Islam more broadly. In this sense, the Salafi case casts light on the material and the perceptual conditions that have transformed Islamic scholarly reasoning and also Islamic movements in modernity, and also on the ways in which the citation of past authorities, here citation of the Hadith corpus, is often a highly discontinuous, even radical, historical act. My book also makes an argument for the centrality of social practice to understanding modern Islam. This argument is complementary to the longstanding dominance of intellectual history on this front because a focus on practice brings together intellectual, social, and cultural history by showing how ideas are formulated and lived. To be clear, this isn't an argument against the really fantastic work on Salafi thought or on Islamic thought more broadly that has been produced over the last 20 or 30 years. Rather, it is an argument for the use of multiple methods of history, particularly social and cultural history for understanding this and other modern Islamic movements. I'm also making an argument here for a focus on the mundane or practices of daily life in understanding Islamic movements in the 20th and 21st centuries. There is for pretty good reason a great deal of attention given to highly organized and politically powerful actions, whether we're talking about political violence, electoral competition, or mass protests. My argument about Salafism though can be extended to other Islamic movements and help us understand how these movements shape the societies from which they have emerged. And here, I think it's really important to highlight the fact that as much as one might be a member of a Salafi organization or an Islamist organization. It is likely the case that one also spends a significant portion of daily life in non-Islamist or non-Salafi spaces such as state educational institutions or bureaucratic institutions. So in some sense, and this is in contrast to the story that Carrie Wickham tells of a parallel Islamic sector in her wonderful book, Mobilizing Islam, The story of piety is one in most countries of the Middle East or South Asia, one that's very much lived as a minority, one that's very much lived in institutions that don't adhere to your expectations or your norms. With Saudi Arabia, you're obviously being a significant exception. To sum up the book, I hope that readers take two main points away from my book. The first is empirical that distinctly Salafi social practices practices emerge far later than one would expect if their literalist interpretive approach was, in fact, self-explanatory. Literalism is not a self-explanatory approach. It is an interpretive approach like any other. From this, we can conclude that this approach, which is often glossed not only as literalism, but also as fundamentalism, is helpful in understanding how this group understands itself, but not terribly helpful for understanding how the group develops or spreads. My second point is theoretical. I hope that this book provides a model for alternative ways to understand Islamic movements and piety alike, and that it contributes to a conversation among scholars in anthropology, religious studies, history, and even political science on this topic. And that hope is not simply a reflection of my ambitions for the book, though like any author, I have ambitions for my book, but also a reflection of the profound debt that I owe in my own learning to these other fields and the extent, the amount that I have learned from people outside my
0: discipline. Professor Aaron Roxinger, thank you so much for talking to us in Agba's Chamber.